I didn't set out to sleep with Philippe. For one thing, he was my parents' friend. For another, he was married. On one of their many trips to Paris before I lived there, my parents met Philippe Roussel, an ophthalmologist, at Eau Charpentier, a neighborhood restaurant near Saint-Germain-des-Prés, where long family-style tables bring you into closer contact with other diners than you might wish. In his travel diary, which I discovered after his death, my father reported that the French friends who had recommended the restaurant had said that, while not modern or elegant, it was a place where intellectuals came to eat. My parents were all for intellectuals, as long as I didn't marry one. And while traveling in France, which they had been doing since the mid-1950s, they prided themselves on eating at restaurants not listed in the Michelin Guide. Sitting across the narrow table, the doctor noticed my father putting drops into his bloodshot eyes. He struck up a conversation with my parents, offering his professional services. After dinner, they all went back to his office around the corner on the Rue Jacob, where the eye doctor treated my father by injection. As if that were not enough? This could only happen to me, my father noted in a rare burst of personal reporting. Philippe then invited my parents into his living quarters, adjacent to the office, for drinks and music. Philippe, it turned out, was not only a great eye doctor, but a brilliant pianist. He played from memory for an hour. The music so moved my father that he crushed the wine glass he was holding in his hand. The following year, when they became better acquainted, Philippe played tennis with my mother, who was not accustomed to losing, and beat her 6-2-6-2-6-4. A fine game, according to the diary entry, despite the score. I never knew what I liked most about the story, which my father had told more than once. My father having his eye injected by a total stranger, or my father so stirred by Schubert that he broke a glass listening to the music. When I arrived in Paris in the early fall of 1961 to study at the Sorbonne, I made an appointment to see Philippe about my contact lens prescription. A few weeks later, he invited me to a party at his apartment. The following day, when I got back from my job teaching English at a lycée for girls, I found his card with a message scrawled in brown ink. N. Vous avez fait des ravages. The ravaged victim of my charms turned out to be a Japanese painter who had been passing through Paris. He wanted to practice his English over dinner, but I wasn't in the mood for more lessons. Within the week, Philippe invited me out to dinner himself. We drove to Montparnasse in his red Volkswagen convertible, with the top up and his hand under my skirt. I wasn't completely surprised to find Philippe's hand creeping nimbly under my garter belt. I had already been initiated into this practice by Monsieur Delatre, the phonetics professor, during the summers I spent at Middlebury College's French school, where all the students signed a language pledge, an engagement d'honneur, not to speak a word of English for six weeks under threat of expulsion. We were willing prisoners of the pledge, endlessly correcting each other, 
alert to the slightest infraction, even while kissing. Perfecting our French was the fantasy that inspired compliance. Monsieur Delattre would pick me up at my boarding house, and we would go for long drives late at night down deserted country roads. I learned French slang words for penis, que and verge, surprised that they were feminine nouns, while con, cunt, was masculine, and also meant a guy who was a jerk. With no clue that nice girls were not supposed to know these expressions, certainly not use them. I cared only about my accent and getting the gender right. I justified the fingers by the phonetics.